Isaiah 39, feel free to read out loud if you like. Verse 1. Now, the timing of this was just within a few weeks after Hezekiah was healed of a fatal disease. It says, at that time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah. For he had heard he had been sick and was recovered. And Hezekiah was glad of them. He showed them the house of his precious things, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious ointment and all that was found in his treasures. There is nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Then came Isaiah the prophet unto King Hezekiah, and he said unto him, What said these men? And from whence came they unto thee? And Hezekiah said, They are come from a far country unto me, even from Babylon. Babylon was about northwest of where Jerusalem was at. Then he, that is Isaiah, said, What have they seen in thy house? And Hezekiah answered, All that is in my house have they seen. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not showed them. Then said Isaiah to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days come that all that is in thy house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. And of thy sons that shall issue from thee, which thou shalt beget, shall they take away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And just to underscore there, we know many years later that's what happened with that. Those young men that were taken away by Nebuchadnezzar, men like Daniel and uh, his three friends, Mishael, Azariah, and Hananiah, all these men were brought into the service of the king. They were made eunuchs to serve the king. And so in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah drops a pretty big bomb on Hezekiah. He basically tells him, the next generation is going to have a tough time. Everything will be gone. Everything. What you receive from your forefathers, including David, what you brought together, it's all going to be gone. What was Hezekiah's response? Notice verse 8. Then said Hezekiah to Isaiah, Good is the word of the Lord which thou hast spoken. By the way, that should be our response. Every time God's word is spoken, good is the word of the Lord. Amen? Good is the word of the Lord. But notice the next phrase. He said, moreover, for there shall be peace and truth in my days. I want to preach a message this morning entitled, The King Who Passed the Buck. The King Who Passed the Buck. Father, thank you for the reading of your word. The Bible says, the entrance of thy word giveth light, sanctifies through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Well, I pray for this hour that you would come down upon this area of our church property, meet with us individually, sanctify each seat, every person. But we don't really understand what a miracle is. A miracle, if you want a health miracle, like what happened with Hezekiah, is when medical science, doctors' capabilities, medicines, are unable 
to change our circumstance. A miracle is what, when God does something that only God can do. It's nothing we can do. It's nothing we, we're able to manufacture. It must be of God. And Hezekiah was a recipient of a miracle. In fact, we know of two recorded miracles that happened in his life. The one where his life was healed of a, of a fatal disease. I believe it was a cancerous tumor that he had. It may have been a sarcoma type of cancer. And the other one was when God came down and visited with the 185,000 Assyrians and took that army out overnight with a death angel. Hezekiah received an extension of life. The angel of God came to him. And, uh, Isaiah told him through the, uh, the message of God. He says, I'm going to extend years. And God gave him 15 more years. Now, I want you to understand this. We're in chapter 39. You're responsible. You're blamed to somebody else. It's not my problem. It's not my, it's not my, my issue I have to deal with. I, I've known of men as they've passed the baton in business or in the ministry where they said, well, they're talking to other men. They'll say, well, you know, we've got all these, we've got this dead and we've got these problems. And the man who's passing baton will say something like this. They'll say, well, it doesn't matter to me because it's not my problem. It'll be their problem later on. And what Hezekiah is basically saying here in verse 8, he says, Good is the word of the Lord which he's spoken. There shall be peace and truth in my days. He was saying, you know what? I understand that the future generation is going to have some hardship and the future generation is going to have some difficulty, but it's okay because as long as I have peace and truth in my day, it doesn't really matter. As long as it doesn't happen to me, as long as it's not my problem, as long as it doesn't happen in my watch, as long as I, I'm not the one who suffers, it's okay. And you and I have known people that feel that way. They know there's problems that come on, but they're just glad it's not their problem. They may hear there's an earthquake somewhere else, but it's not their problem. They may hear that there's a field somewhere where yet to have to hear the gospel, and we're, we're, we're burned about it for a few minutes. But the moment we leave church, we just think, well, it's somebody else's problem. They're sure we'll go to somebody else's church and take care of it. That's, that's really the predominant theme, really, in America. People have this attitude, it's okay as long as it's not my problem. Is it biblical to pass the buck? Is it biblical to be concerned about the next generation? Should I be concerned for my little granddaughter's generation and future generation? Should I be concerned about three generations? Should I be concerned about your grandchildren? Should I be concerned about your children? Should we be concerned what happens to the next generation? I want you to see three things this morning about Hezekiah. Because sometimes things happen in our life that we don't really have a lot of time to think and prepare for. We've got to have ingrained within us certain convictions, and we have to ingra have ingrained with us a certain desire that we're, we're going to do the right thing. And, you know, sometimes you, it's, it's the accumulation of all the years of preaching and the accumulation of all the years of Bible reading, the accumulation of all the years of praying and being mentored by godly men and women, understanding that you've got to come to place. You're going to make a good decision. Why don't you see three things about Hezekiah? Notice, first of all, the response concerning his deliverance. The Bible says in verse 1, at that time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and was recovered. Word had spread around the Middle East about Hezekiah's healing. You got to remember the people outside of Jerusalem were pagan worshipers and they were superstitious. Word had spread about, about something that, could not, that was not humanly possible, where a sundial went backwards 10 degrees. And a man who was diagnosed with a fatal disease, 39 years of age, who had been told he was going to die, that the prophet turned back around and told him he'd have an extension of life. And this man was going to live. Word is spread around. And this man by the name of Merodach Baladin, who's the king of Babylon, comes. Merodach Baladin in history raised up an army that fought with the Assyrians in 720 B.C. He beat them at the city of Babylon and took Babylon as his stronghold. Now, Babylon was not the great world power. It'll be a few years later. 
But in Merodach Baladim, you could say, was kind of the uh, kind of the start of that. He conquered Babylon, which was northwest of Jerusalem, upwards. He held the city from 720 BC to 710 BC, 10 years. He made other concretes. And if you know anything about conquerors, they're not content just in what they conquer. They're content in getting allies. They want other nations to come alongside of them. They, they want to build their armies. They want to build their forces. You have to remember, Assyria was a great, great world power. They were feared. They were atrocious in their divide. They're the ones that invented the crucifixion. They're very barbaric in things they did. They, 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 they would take prisoners and saw them in half, and that would be embedded in people's minds. And so he realized he needed some allies. And this man, he, he held the city of Babylon for 10 years. And then he lost the city to the Assyrians in 710 B.C. But somehow he fought his way back up. I mean, this guy was a scruffer. He came back up and he captured the city of Babylon again in 705 B.C. and held it to 702 B.C. In the midst of that time of his reign, word went all the way up northwest to Babylon and he heard about the miracle of Hezekiah. Now, he would do like you and I have done over during COVID-19. He took some time, and he got his people together, and they wrote some get well cards and get well letters. And the Bible says here in verse 1, they sent these letters and a present to Hezekiah. Now, he sent a large ambassage of men down there. It wasn't a small caravan. It was a large caravan of people that he sent down there. They came with get well letters. And you know how it is when you're feeling, we're not feeling very good. And someone takes enough time to tell you, hey, I'm praying for you and I hope you're doing well. That's encouragement to us. You know, um, when COVID-19, we, we, a lot of you helped us in writing thank you notes to our frontliners and, and firefighters and people like that. And we presented them. And I remember at Eden Hospital, when we did our first, our, one of our first um, uh, uh, HBC Cares presentation to them, that we, a bunch of us stood there with some of the nurses and frontliners and stuff, and they presented the, the, the board with all the cards, and, and some of the nurses there, just tears started coming down their eyes and welling up, and, and we went to another time, we went into, I think it was Highland Hospital, we were over inside the, uh, the cafeteria there where the, surg uh, the, sur the, the surgical team was, and some of them came in, they just came out of surgery, and there, there were tears welling in their eyes because they were so thankful that in spite of all the difficulties they faced, somebody took time out of the day to say, hey, I'm praying for you. Somebody took time out of the day to say, I'm concerned about you. Hezekiah had been well for just a few weeks. He'd been delivered. I want you to notice the first thing this morning, his private response. Go back to chapter 38 and notice verses 17 to 22 quickly. Now, when you get well and God does something great in your life, I mean, there needs to be a response. Amen? We need to respond. We need to let God know, thank you, Lord. I mean, when God does something great in your life, you know, the first thing people say that have been around church a little bit, they say, praise the Lord, amen? Thank God for that. Thank God for the new job. Uh, one, of our, one of our men our church has got a new job and just doing very well. He sent me a text late at night, last, last Sunday night or something like that. He said, Pastor, just got this new job. And he says, I just got my first paycheck, and I am excited to give my tithe to the Lord. I say, amen. amen. Somebody's been sick very long. They say, praise the Lord, I'm getting well, I'm doing better. Blood pressure's down, and it used to be up, and I'm getting well, and I'm getting off the medicines. I mean, praise God when you're getting well, amen? And listen, this man got healed, and he was very thankful that moment inside his chambers of his palace. He gave an initial response, a private response. Notice very, very quickly, in verse 17, first thing he did, he acknowledged God's love. And he's like, hey, how many are you thankful this morning? God loves you, amen? Here was a man that was dying he was told he was going to die and he was given life. By the way, aren't you thankful this morning? We know a man who died and came back, from, came back to life. Amen? His name is Jesus Christ. 
He was thankful. He said, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption. Hey, every morning we ought to wake up, brother and sister in Christ, and we ought to thank God for his protection. We ought to thank God he kept us out of a car accident. We ought to thank God that we're healthy. We ought to thank God that we had a clean bill of health on our physical exam. We ought to thank God that our health is not worse than us. He was thanking God that God had delivered him from the pit of corruption, whether you're 10 years old or 20 years old or 50 years old or 60 years old or 70 years old. Thank God you've been delivered from the pit of corruption. Amen. Then notice, secondly, he talked about not only just being alive, but he said, listen, he said in verse 19, the living, the living, he shall praise thee as I do this thing. He realized that in the grave you can't praise God. Hey, listen, I think he's telling you something theologically that's important. We better take advantage of the life we have and all that's within me that breathes to thank God for his goodness every single day, amen? I tell you, the best cure when you're, when you're feeling down and the best cure when you're feeling negative and the best cure when you're, things are overwhelming is have a thankful spirit before God, Amen. He said, the living, the living, he shall praise as I do this day. Hey, did you thank God this morning for today? Are you thanking God for the sunshine? Are you thanking God we have in church, amen? Are you thanking God we have, still have some freedom? Are you thanking God this morning that, that, that God is working in your life here? He said, the living, the living shall praise thee, O God. He didn't have a son yet. But during these last 15 years, he'd have a son that would be born by the name of Manasseh. He thought, as every father does when there's a birth of a child, he had a vision for his child. And thank God that that vision materializes. Thank God that the child can stay straight and live for God. And he thought, you know, the father to the children shall make known thy truth. He says, I have responsibility. Now, he's making a great statement here right at the, in this private response. The father to the children shall make known the truth. Tell your children the word of God. Let them know they're sinners and need to get saved. Tell them church is good. Tell them God's word is the authority in our life. Amen? Tell them to respect parental authority. I just wrote a devotion that's going to come up this week about Proverbs chapter 1, the importance of the authority of God and the authority of the parents in a child's life. Then he said in verse 20, he said, the Lord was ready to save me. Hey, I got good news for you. Even before you get saved, the Lord's ready to save you. Amen? Aren't you glad this morning he looked at the situation, he saw, I was about to die, God was ready to say, hey, I'm going to tell you something, God is ready to save you, God is ready to answer your prayer, God is ready to work in life. He recognized the working of God in his life, he said, the Lord was ready to save me, and he says, therefore, we will sing my songs to the string instruments. I told the first hour, it's going to be a great day when we can go back inside, and we can have our choir, and our orchestra again, orchestra, don't get rusty, amen, you know, choir, keep just singing in the shower so you don't bother anybody, amen, you know. It's going to be a great day, and we can do that again. You say, when's that going to happen? I'm not sure. We may have to force the way, man. But all he's saying here is, you know what? I'm so thankful. There was a private response, but there was a public response too. We get to chapter 39. Notice verses 1 and 2. Notice his, private respo- his public response. And his public response, Miraduk Baladin's Ambassage came with get well letters and a present. For he'd heard that he'd been sick. Now keep your finger there, and I want you to go with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 32. Would you do that, please? 2 Chronicles 32. Let me give you a simple yet a very profound thought. 2 Chronicles 32 verse 21. I'm going to read the verse with you, and then I'm going to give you the scriptural principle. 
To understand everything in chapter 39 of Isaiah, you've got to read 2 Chronicles 32, and I think it's 2 Kings 20. 2 Chronicles 32 verse 21 tells us this, Howbeit in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land. Listen to this phrase. Listen to this. God left him to try him that he may know all that was in his heart. God left him to try him to see all that was in his heart. Now, he was good privately. A few weeks later, he gets a public acknowledgement from a man of dignity, a man in the Middle East people knew that had actually beaten the Assyrians and taken a city from them. God was testing him. You know, the greatest test in your life and mine is not the trial itself. The greatest test in your life and mine is our response to the trial. Because God was testing him to see what is hard. Did you know something, brother and sister in Christ, when God has a hardship and God has a sickness and God has a cancer and God has someone who passes away in our life and something difficult happens and these things overwhelm us and when we lose a job and we're out of money, we can't pay our bills and things difficult happen. You know, those things are bad, but what's really bad is how we respond to the trial. Because if we don't respond in the right way, it's going to tell God a lot about our faith. And the Bible says God did this to try him to see what was his heart. Now notice his public response. The moment Merodach Baladin came, the very first thing he was, he received these letters, he received these gifts, and the Bible says, notice chapter 39 of Isaiah, he was glad of them. Well, that sounds okay, Pastor. It does, except you need to study the passage out. When it says he was glad of them, it means literally this, he was flattered that somebody took notice of what happened to him. He was flattered that he was getting honored for what God did in his life. He was flattered that somebody from the outside brought him a present. He started thinking about, well, nobody in Israel, nobody in Judah gave me a present, and nobody in Judah cared about who I was, and nobody in Judah cared about what was going on. He was flattered in his heart what these men had come with, and they brought him get well letters. Now, let me help you this morning. Nobody ever acknowledges you. Nobody ever writes you. Don't you get discouraged. God knows who you are, amen? I remind you this morning, if nobody ever acknowledges your service, Lord, the Bible says in Hebrews 6.10, God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. And receiving these gifts, he now is very excited. You know what he does? Now, we would say the spiritual thing for him to do is to, he should sit down and pull up a chair and say, oh, guys, let me tell you what God did for me. And let me tell you how God healed me. Let me tell you how I was dying. And let me tell you I had a lump this big protruding out of my belly. And let me tell you about, but let me tell you about this cancerous sarcoma that I had and how the prophet came in and said, set my house in order because I'm about to die. And let me tell you what God did. God heard my prayer and God answered it. And he sent the prophet back and he came back, told me I was going to get well. And he said, I got well. And I turned around and God gave me back 15. I said, he'd give me 15 years. And God said to prove it, he set the sundial back 10, years, 10, 10 degrees so I would know. But he didn't say all that. Instead, the Bible tells verses 1 and 2, he showed them his silver and his gold, his precious ointment and his armory and all his treasures. You know what's saying there? He showed them his wealth, he showed them his weapons, and he showed them his warehouse. 
You say, problem, is there a problem with that, Pastor? Yes, it's a big problem with that. I want to give you a couple of principles. Number one, would you write this down? Principle number one on this, which you notice in this public response. First of all, according to Proverbs 27, 6, write that down. Proverbs 27, 6, he let down his guard. Look at Proverbs 27, 6. Proverbs 27, 6 is faithful the wounds of a friend. Hey, thank God if you have a friend who's very upfront and candid with you sometimes. Amen. But the second part is the part we miss. He said, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. He let down his guard. Hey, I realized God's put you in the working world and God has given you a job and God has given some of you good, good you've gotten scholarships to school and you're doing, I mean, we are a blessed church. Say amen if you believe we're a blessed church. We are a blessed church. We've been a blessed church from the day God started this church. But you and I have something that is very difficult we have to deal with every day. It's called the ego. It's called pride. Our ego and pride, we want affirmation. We want acceptance. We want to be acknowledged. We can could, we could talk humble all we want, but the truth of the matter is we, we kind of enjoy people telling us how good we are and actually believing it. He let down his guard. Let me just say this in passing this morning. We are in the world. We're not to be of the world. Sometimes you can be in church. Nobody ever notices who you are. Nobody ever writes you. Some people feel like they ignore you. They don't. They just, it's their personality. They feel like they ignore you. You feel like they ignore you. And then you go to work. And you're in the world. And somebody, somebody shows attention. If we're not very careful, we will tend to gravitate towards the attention and believe all that we hear. I just want to tell you this morning, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Don't let the world, the co-workers, the unsaved people fool you into thinking that they're, they're all there for you as much as they really say they are. This, the Bible says friendship with the world is enmity with God. The kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I know that sounds kind of hard, but that's Bible truth. He let down his guard, but notice something else. He let go of the glory. Look at this. Instead of showing his house and his treasures and everything about him, the Bible says in Proverbs, the Bible says here he showed them all his glory. The Bible says, in fact, in verse 2, it says, There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Now listen to this. Proverbs 27, 21. As the furnace finding pot for silver and the furnace for gold, so is a man to his praise. Now, if you lived in that time, you understood that. A finding pot was how you would, you would melt down the silver to get, the, the, get the, 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 the junk out of it. So you'd have pure silver. As the finding pot is for silver and the furnace is for gold. In other words, when it's heated up at a certain temperature to burn away all the impurities as it proves what it is. Listen, the proof of a man's character and a woman's character, the proof of what we really are, is how we react to praise in our life. He gave not God the glory. He was like Herod over in Acts chapter 12 when he got up to speak and he gave a great oration and the, and the people got up and said, oh, it's the voice of a God and not of man. And he started going, 
yeah, that's right, I'm a God, I really am. And God had enough of that man's addicts. And the Bible says God smote him on the spot and he was eaten of the worms. And the Bible tells us why, because he gave not the glory. Hey, I'm saying this morning, we need to be very careful that we don't let down our guard and we need to be very careful that we not let go of the glory. Hudson Taylor was in China for many, many years. He kind of paved the way what we do in modern-day missions, he would be what you would call one of the first of the cross-cultural missions, mission pioneers. He teaches us cross-cultural missions. God used that man to start many churches. God used that man to start Christian schools way before Becca. We had Becca curriculum and ACE and things like that. God used that man to train hundreds of Chinese men to be preachers, to carry the gospel. In fact, when on one of my mission trips way up in northern China, we met some of the descendants of Hudson Taylor's, uh, of, of the works that Hudson Taylor's had started. We met some people that got saved through those works. Now Hudson Taylor's an older man and couldn't do as much as he did before. And so the Western world had heard all that he had done, and they had started inviting him all throughout the Western world to come and preach. He got invited to preach a big preacher's conference in Melbourne, Australia. The pastor that got up to introduce him was trying to wax eloquent. He started describing all these good things about Hudson Taylor. He talked about all these ex exploits he did and what, where he went in China, that he could speak Mandarin and a couple of other dialects. And he started talking about these schools. He started preachers and training and how he just was at the forefront of cross-culture mission. All he started just saying a lot of things, building the whole, the whole thing up about Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor sitting on the platform there was, it was not very comfortable with everything the man was saying. And as soon as his time was, Hudson Taylor got up, he lowered his head and made his way to the pulpit like this. And he looked over the people and they're waiting for something glorious to come in his mouth. And he said this, I'm just a little servant that serves an illustrious master. And I remind you this morning, our response to what God does in our life, we must give God the glory. We must give God the glory. Secondly, quickly. We see the response to his deliverance, which you notice, secondly, the revelation in his discretion. Verses 3 and 4 tell us the meaning that he had with Isaiah the prophet. When we end verse 2, verse 2 tells us there is nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah showed them not. Now, about you, if somebody comes to my house, I don't know them. First of all, I don't even let them in. Amen? Okay. Secondly, even if they do, I'm not sure I want them to see all my house. Amen? And there's just certain things you know you just don't show people, right? So if you go and soul winning, you visit people and they, you catch them off guard. They'll invite you in and they start clearing up the living room. You say, don't bother. Don't worry about them. And immediately after that, one of the spouses gets there with children. They say, start closing the door. They close the door of the bathroom, close the door of the bedroom. They don't want you to see everything that's there. They don't want you to see what's in the house. Amen? But this man, Hezekiah, man, he wanted him to see his wealth. He wanted them to see his weapons. He wanted to see his warehouse. I mean, he took them around. And man, he, when he took them to his armory, he showed them where the bows and arrows were, what kind of swords they had, what kind of habergens they had, what kind of shields they had. And what, he, he showed them everything there. I mean, these people are taking mental notes of, well, okay, there's his silver and there's his gold and there's his weapons and there, this, is, this is his gates and these are his doors and this was going on here. I mean, they had a full glimpse of everything in the kingdom. The Bible says there is nothing in all his possessions, his dominion, that he did not show them. Discretion is being wise about what to say, about what to do, about where to go. 
And while, I, while Hezekiah was all excited about what he did, he did not ask counsel of Isaiah, nor did he invite Isaiah to be there that moment because they had a visit from a foreigner from a foreign country. Isaiah hears about it because God told him about it. And Isaiah, the red flags are going in his mind because he saw what was going on. He saw these people walking around. He saw Isaiah giving them the open house tour. He saw what he was doing. He saw Isaiah opening up his treasuries. He saw Isaiah taking them to the armory. He saw Isaiah taking through his rooms, his palaces, and the gates and the doors and locks and describing in intricate detail everything about his kingdom. And Isaiah made his way there. He didn't ask for an audience. He came in and in. He said, what? Hey, who are these men? What did they say to you? Where are they from? And he said, what have they seen in thy house? Hezekiah is just kind of like, whoa. What did they say to you? Where are they from? What have they seen in thy house? It's progressive. And you notice here this man in his, was lacking in discretion. We call it indiscretion. It was indiscreet. Being indiscreet can be harmful. It can hurt your testimony. It can affect your effectiveness for God. Would you notice he was indiscreet about his vanity? Look again with me this passage. He showed them everything in his house. The precious things, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ointment, all the house of his army, all those found his treasures. He didn't answer Hezekiah's questions. Did you notice that? Because Hezekiah already knew the answer. He was indiscreet concerning his vanity. You know, it's amazing what God's people could talk about. We're very articulate about a lot of things that we're very passionate about. This Hezekiah, who just weeks before had gotten the healing hand of God on his life and saw the miracle of a sundown turn back 10 degrees, now is giving an open house tour, everything about his kingdom. He'd show them his buildings, but he couldn't show them, he couldn't show them a marked up Bible. He could show them his wealth, but he couldn't show them any works for God. He could show them, he could show them his collection, but he couldn't show them Christ. He could show them his precious ointment, but he couldn't show them the ointment of the Holy Spirit. He could show them his treasures, but he couldn't show them that in these earthen vessels we have a treasure called the Holy Spirit of God. He showed them his armory, but he couldn't show them the armor of God. And it's just like I think modern day Christianity. We can't resist showing them all that's in our house. Not God's house, but our house. We know more about our cars than we know about, more about Christ. We know more about our problems. We talk more about our problems than we do about our praises and the promises of God. We talk more about success than we talk about being saved. We talk more about our health than we talk about holiness. We talk more about our gains than we do about God. We talk more about our sports than we talk about being spiritual. We can be more grumpy 
instead of being more grateful. I'm just saying today, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speak it. He showed indiscretion when it came to his vanity. He showed indiscretion when it came to his vulnerabilities. I want you to think with me just a minute. When he showed them everything, they're taking careful note where his weak spots are, where his vulnerabilities are. You know, the devil doesn't care what you've accumulated in this life. You might show something that's popular, but the devil wants to see, I want to see that neglected prayer life. And you may show that you've got all these book collections, but the devil wants to see, I wonder when's the last time he opened his Bible and read it. You see, when he did all these things, he was basically saying, look at me, look at me, look what I've done here. But he showed his vulnerability. Hey, I'm reminded about this morning about a man by the name of Samson. Samson was a Nazarite by vow. He was a man of God. He was a man that was privileged to know God's unusual power in his life. I don't, I don't think that, that, contrary to how the world portrays Samson, I don't think Samson was a very muscular, brawny kind of guy. I think he was just an ordinary guy that had the supernatural power of God in his life. Amen? And he had a lot of weaknesses. One of his weaknesses was indulging with women. And a woman came to his life by the name of Delilah, and Delilah was paid a handsome price of silver. They said, we'll give you all this silver if you can find out for us the source of his weakness. And so he messed with her a little bit. She kept trying to, trying to after him, and he messed with her. But after a while, she just kept nagging him and nagging him and nagging him. She was like a dripping faucet in a, in a wide house, and she just kept nagging him and nagging him and nagging him. Finally, he had enough of it. And the Bible tells us a description which was the problem and the downfall of Samson. It says that he told her all that was in his heart. You better not tell the devil how good you are. You better not let the devil know that you think your riches are what's made you. And you better not let the devil know that you think that you're doing okay because you haven't prayed for many days. Listen, the devil knows that. They saw his vulnerabilities. And I remind this morning, the spiritual enemies of our life, they see our vulnerabilities. They see where we're weak. They see a neglected prayer spot. They know them when we haven't been tithing. They know that we're not, our hearts not in it. They know that we're not living for God. They know that we're just not all excited like we used to be. They know what our weaknesses are. And by the way, sometimes the devil knows your weakness better than you know your weakness yourself. He was indiscreet with his vulnerabilities. What have they seen in thy house? Let me give you a couple thoughts this morning as we're nearing a close. What vulnerabilities did he display? You want to write this down? Number one, he, had, he showed that he had more faith in his wealth and his armies than he had faith in God. And that was a mistake. Because God was the one who gave him victory over the Assyrians. And God was the one who healed him without spending a dollar. Think about that for just a minute. He told them he had more faith in his wealth and his armies than he did in God. Secondly, he showed he wanted the approval of men more than the approval of God. I just want to tell you this morning again, God is not unrighteous to forget your labor of love. You feel like nobody knows, God knows Number three, he showed he could pray when he was in a crisis, but he couldn't pray when things were calm. All of us are pretty good at praying when there's a problem, amen? All of us are pretty good at praying when it's coming down hard on us. But when there's a sea of calm, 
and there's no difficulties. Our health is good. Bills are paid. Seemingly, we don't pray as diligently and as earnestly as we normally would. And he showed he could pray well in a crisis, but he couldn't pray very well when, it was com- when he was in a calm. And then a fourth thing I want to give you note in. He showed something else. He showed he needed God's word when he was desperate, but he did not need God's word on a daily basis. And I want to encourage you this morning, we get like that too. When we're desperate for an answer, we search the word of God. We stay up a little bit later, we're searching out. I want to encourage you this morning, don't let the enemy find you in your weak spot. Be careful showing the enemy all that's in your house. Be careful showing him all your treasures and all your possessions. Be careful what you're exposing the enemy. I'm saying this morning, he was, as, he, as he was living his life, we see the revelation in his discretion. We see the response in his deliverance. I want to give you a last thing we're done. Go down with me the final verses, verses 5 to 8. Would you notice this? We see he was reckless in his duty. He told the prophet, I've shown them all my house. In verses 5 to 7, Isaiah drops a bomb on him. It's, it's pretty tough. <laughs> it was, th- this was tough preaching. He told him verse 5 and 7, okay, because of what you've done, Babylon's going to come down in the future. They're going to take away all your possessions, all your wealth, and take away all your armory, and they're going to carry it to a foreign land. He said also in those days, and he was giving him a hint, it would not happen in his days, it would happen in the future. And in those days, not only will they take away everything you have and everything you've inherited, that includes everything David passed down to you many years before. He said, they're also going to take your sons and put your sons into their service and make them eunuchs. And if you study history, you study your Bible, that's exactly what happened with groups like Daniel and Hananiah and Mishael and Azariah. Those men we read about in Daniel chapter 1, that's exactly what happened to them. That prophecy was fulfilled in those young men that were taken down to Babylon. So number one, Isaiah tells them, I hate to tell you this, Isaiah, but the chasing hand of God is going to be on your life. What you did will bring God's chasing judgment on the generation coming after you. Look again at verse 6. Behold, the days come that all that is in thy house and that which thy fathers have laid up in store until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, saith the Lord. Let's bring that down to where you and I are at. I want you to imagine me for just a minute. Heritage Baptist Church. I want you to imagine with me all the goodness of God that's been bestowed on this church and on your life. Think about all the money that's been given in 21 years for the work of the ministry, for missions, for buildings, all gone. Imagine the ministries we've had, all gone. Imagine no more preaching services. Imagine no more church. Imagine the buildings gone. Imagine the vehicles gone. Imagine ministries being collapsed. I mean, imagine with me everything that we've worked for, we've prayed for, we've lived for, gone. 
no teen ministry, no college ministry, no adult growth groups, no Wednesday night prayer time, no Sunday night service, no Sunday morning service, choir is gone, orchestra is gone, AV's gone, children's Sunday school is gone, glow ministry which started yesterday, gone. I mean, everything we've done, imagine with me all this taken away and being gone. Here's my question. If all that was gone, how would that affect you? Notice Hezekiah's answer. He said in verse 8, Good is the word of the Lord, which thou hast spoken. By the way, that should be our attitude, as I said earlier. We should say, good is the word of the Lord, which has been spoken. Amen? We ought to say, praise God for his word. And then he said this. Moreover, for there shall be peace, and truth in my days. Here's what he did. I'm going to tell you, paraphrase it. I'm almost done. He's saying this. Okay, Isaiah, I've heard you out. My son's days, my grandson's days, great-grandson's days, everything's going to be gone. The chasing hand of God's on life. Now, you got to bear in mind, he's in the first year of an extended 15 years. Remember that. He's in the first year of an extended 15 years. I heard you out, prophet. It's going to be gone. He's as good as the word which, of the Lord which thou hast spoken. He said, moreover, there shall be peace and truth in my days. Here's what he's saying. Whew. As long as it doesn't happen to me, as long as it doesn't happen on my watch, as long as it's not my problem, as long as I get to keep everything I have, it does, I don't really care what happens in a future time. I don't really care what happens to my children. I really don't care what happens to my grandchildren. I really don't care what happens in the future. As long as there's peace and truth in my brother and sister in Christ, boys and girls, men and women, I'm going to tell you this morning, he was reckless in his duty. We get like that. We get like that. We get tired of fighting. We get tired of contending for the faith. We get, we get tired of preaching. We get tired of prayer meetings. We get tired of church gatherings. Let's have a little more fellowship. Let's have more get-together time. He said, as long as there's peace and truth in my days, good is the word of the Lord. Whew. My friend this morning, that is not an option for us. That is not an option for us. Amen? That's recklessness in duty. It does matter what happens to the next generation. It does matter what we pass on five years from now. It does matter 10 years from now that the semblance of church is church as we know it today. That church does not change. That the music is godly and glorifying. That preaching is from the King James Bible. We have to realize heaven and earth shall pass away, but God's word shall never pass away. Well, it does matter that we pass down an evangelistic spirit. And it does matter that we pass down a church that's on fire for God. And it does matter that church is essential. And it does matter that we live spiritual lives that are victorious. And it does matter that we're more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. And it does matter that men are getting called to the ministry. And it does matter that we're supporting missionaries. And it does matter we have faith promise missions. And it does matter that in spite of all the things going on, that we're going to pass down to the next generation a church that is on fire for God. We took our faith promise pledges. I'm almost done. We took our faith promise pledges last week. And it's, it's weird. It's kind of a different situation. Half the church is watching by live stream and and we didn't really have, I'll be honest with you, I, I think, just, and it's my fault, with just our communication, just how to register and all that probably wasn't very good. And, and, and we have a lot of faithful people in our church. I mean, just I'm talking to the faithful group right here. But as I got the initial numbers back, I'm 
not worried, but a little concerned. I've tried as best I can to explain, hey, I want you, if you're in Faith Promise Missions, whatever your support's been the last year, keep it the same or even look at increasing it and then come alongside and let's do something that we haven't done before. Let's stretch forth the curtains of our habitation and put aside an amount that'll be for missionary special projects. First priority is to help come alongside of our missionaries to help encourage starting new churches in the next 12 to 15 months. And then other special projects. And right now, again, I know it's a little slow for things coming. We're about at 60% on, the, on our faith promise play. We're about 60% of where we were at when we had our last year's conference. So we're about 40% off, and I think it's still going to come in. Our capital projects fund, our mission special projects, a little bit lower than I expected at this stage. But again, I'm concerned, not overly worried. But I wonder if maybe some of us have struggled in our heart I'm not really sure I want to do it this year. You know, we got COVID-19, and I don't know if my job's going to be around, and I don't know about this, and I don't know about that, and there might be, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to the presidency. I, I, don't, I don't know what's going to happen. 1 Corinthians 10, I got a message. And two ladies who are nieces of a member of our church messaged back on Facebook that they'd received Jesus Christ as their personal Savior at the end of the service. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you're not sure you're saved, like those two ladies, you can get saved today, and heaven can be your home. I'll help you with that in a moment. Christian friend, let us not see like Hezekiah. Moreover, there shall be peace and truth in my days. Let's say this, it does matter. And I'm going to make the most of my years and the time ahead of passing down the next generation, a holy church, a serving church, a praying church, a faith church, a soul winning church, a church that's on fire for God. Let's take that stand. If you really believe that, we need to take that stand in a moment.